0: Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us today. I hope the content encourages you and helps you build your faith. Now enjoy the message. Is anybody in here like uh, into personality tests like Enneagram, of course, like Christian horoscope, <laughs> Myers-Briggs? So I am an INTP on the Myers-Briggs, and I'm a six on the Enneagram. For those of you who think I'm speaking tongues, it's like ratings of like your personality type. It basically means I'm logical. I am analytical, and I have the emotional capacity of, like, a potato. Um, My wife, on the other hand, my beautiful, lovely wife, is an INFP on the Myers-Briggs and a 4 on the Enneagram. And rather than explain, like, on Myers-Briggs' website, they have a picture of your personality type. And mine's a scientist. This is my wife's. And if any of you know her, this is, like, she must have modeled for this picture. Like, she's just a barefooted little fairy lady who's, like, spreading joy and, like, talking to animals. So, so obviously, we're pretty opposite. You know, I'm very logical, analytical, fact-based, and she very much goes off of her emotions and the way she's feeling. So, after I took, because I had to take the Myers-Briggs again, I forgot what my type was, I started looking through, when you finish, they give you like, strengths of your personality type, weakness of your personality type, um, best jobs for your personality type, and then I got to the part at the bottom and it gives you different levels of compatibility for partners. So, like, you can look at your personality type and match it up to others and see how compatible you are. So I was like, well, I'm already married, but I'm very curious. They have four different levels. It says kindred spirits is the first one. Like, you guys are just meant to be together. You're just perfect. The next one is intriguing differences. I love how, like, eloquently they put all these, like, intriguing differences. Like, so you'll, you might have some conflict, but mostly you guys are pretty similar. Then there's... Potential compliments, like, oh, these two types mix together, potentially. And then the last one, challenging opposites, which means, like, you, you're just going to struggle your entire life, apparently, based on their description of the website. It was like, don't do it. So where do you think Bree and I landed? Challenging opposites, of course. And I was like, no, I've almost been married for six years. I have a wonderful marriage. I don't know what you're talking about. And then I thought back to, like, how we got here, and I was like, no, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> That's, that makes total sense. That's fine. But through that conflict and through that struggle that we've had, Bree has made me the man I am today. I don't regret any of the conflict we've had because through our conflict, there is growth. It's not just conflict for conflict's sake. We have conflict because we both desire more for each other. And ultimately, that's what a relationship should be. Your partner should be moving you closer to Christ as you guys have conflict. And one of the biggest struggles we had... Well, one of the biggest struggles I had was empathy. Again, I have the emotional opacity of a potato. So like thinking about how others feel is just like does not compute. Um, so Brie would come to me and she would say, uh, she'd come back from work and tell me these issues she's having or this problem she's having. And the entire time she's talking, all I'm doing is like solving her problem as she's speaking. When she's done talking, I've come up with four solutions. And I'm like, you're welcome. Like this is what you need to do, you're done. You're welcome, good husband, give me a kiss. Um, it took me about four years to realize that's not what she wanted, even though she explicitly told me when she was done talking, that's not what I want. Again, I was like, well, yes, it is. Like, you just want me to fix your problems, obviously. Um, but in reality, I kept, I kept saying like, well, I don't understand why you're, you're so upset still. Like I told you what you need to do to fix it. She's like, Mitchell, I don't need you to fix the problem right now. I just want you to empathize with me. Like, I just want to feel like I'm not alone in this. I just want somebody to, like, come alongside me and say, like, hey, I'm your partner. Like, I understand why you're feeling this way, and we're going to get through this. Because ultimately, all of us that have problems, it's not usually the problem that you're worrying about. It's not the, the fact that you can't find a solution. You just don't want to feel alone. And so that brings us to our first verse. In Job 1, verse 1, it says, There was a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz." He was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 team of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. He also had many servants. He was, in fact, the richest person in the entire area. So Job was a blessed man, had anything a man could desire. Jump down to verse 6. One day, members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser, Satan, came with them. "'Where have you come from?' the Lord asked Satan." And Satan answered the Lord, I have been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. Then the Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears the Lord and stays away from evil. And Satan replied to the Lord, "Lord, yes, but Job has good reason to fear you, God. You have always put a wall of protection around him and his home and his property. You have made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is, but each... But reach out and take away everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. All right. You may test him, said the Lord. Do whatever you want to everything he possesses, but don't harm him physically. So Satan left the Lord's presence. And as Satan left his presence, in a matter of minutes, Job's life was completely ripped apart. People took all of his livestock, everything that he owned. His children were all dining together in one of the houses, and the house collapsed, killing them all. And this, again, this happened in a matter of minutes, Job's lost everything, and we see Job's response in verse 20. He said, he stood up and tore his robe in grief. Then he shaved his head and fell to the ground to worship. He said, I came naked from my mother's womb, and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had, and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin by blaming God. Notice Job's first response, which any of us would be hard-pressed to emulate. He's just lost everything in an instant. And his first response is, naked I came from my mother's room, and naked I shall return. Everything I have has been a blessing from God. My hand has created nothing that I have in life, but God has blessed me with absolutely everything, and happy I am to go without anything into death. And he says, he claims no entitlement. He doesn't respond, God, why me? Why is this happening to me? Why are you doing this to me, God? And I think we'd all be hard-pressed to respond that way as well. But in a further challenge from Satan, He now covers Job with boils, and Job is just sitting in the wreckage of his home and his life, scraping his skin with a broken pottery shard, just trying to find some relief. And his three friends come around the corner, and they see him. And as they see him, they immediately tear their robes, and they begin to grieve as well. They see this glorious, righteous man of God, who is the most prosperous person in the nation, and they see him just sitting there in misery, on an ash heap, and they can't take it themselves. And they just sit with him for seven days, which in reality was probably the best thing they could have done because, I mean, somebody like Job, what do you say? What do you say to somebody who's just lost everything in an instant? Like, all things work together for the good of God, right? That's not loving. But after seven days, Job's youngest friend, Eliphaz, he he just has to say something. He just, he can't stay quiet. He's that guy in the midst of an awkward situation who just has to share their opinion regardless of whether or not it's warranted. He says, will you be patient and let me say a word? He says, for who could keep from speaking out? In the past, you have encouraged many people. You have strengthened those who were weak. Your words have supported those who were falling. You encouraged those with shaky knees. But now when trouble strikes, you lose heart. You're terrified when it touches you. Doesn't your reverence for God give you confidence? Doesn't your life of integrity give you hope? I'm like, to be completely transparent, I think Eliphaz is a six on the enneagram as well, because I, I kind of relate to him, and I hate to say that, but as, even as I read this, I was like, yeah, I mean, like, Job was this great, righteous man. Like, what are you so upset about? And then I had flashbacks of talking to my wife, and I'm like, Bree, Like, everything's fine. Like, we have a great life. Why are you so upset about this current circumstance? Like, what's the big deal? Get over it. And I don't know how many, oh, that word, that phrase haunts me to this day. Get over it. Oh, oh. just gives me flashbacks of, like, the first year of marriage and just me alone going, why am I in trouble right now? I don't understand. (laughs) But then as you continue reading, Job gives a response that even I, when I was reading this, doing research for this sermon, it it just wrecked me. Because it it perfectly illustrates what somebody going through pain feels. Job responds after Eliphaz has just given this, like, condemnation to him. Like, why are you acting like this? Why are you feeling like this? Job responds in Job 6, 26. Do you think your words are convincing when you disregard my cry of desperation? Job's basically saying, like, don't you know that? Don't you think I know that? Don't you think I remember all these blessings that God has given me? Don't you think I'm aware of his presence in my life? But does that make my suffering any less? And I think that's what we need to learn today. And I say you, me, more than anyone needs to learn. is like, it's not that in the midst of our suffering, we forget God's blessing or that we forget his faithfulness. It's that we still are human and we still feel pain and we want somebody there with us to share in that, to help us know that we're not alone in it. And everyone needs that type of empathy. No matter whether you're righteous, whether you're sinful, everyone needs that sort of empathy. So Job and his friends, they, they start to argue back and forth. And his friends are basically like, Job, surely you've done something. Like, search your memory. Surely you've done something. And if not, you, perhaps your children. Like, your kid's been doing anything bad. Like, you're hanging out in the movies too late at night. Like, what's going on? Surely there's a reason God's done this to you. And Job just continuously holds on to his innocence, and he says, no, search me, God. I am innocent. And, he, and he's so convinced of his innocence, and he's so confused by his circumstances, he just continues to lament over and over again. He's, he starts regretting his, his life. He says he wishes he can go back and stop his own conception because he does not understand why God's doing what he's doing. But he comes to this conclusion in Job 28:23 through 28. He says, God alone understands the way of wisdom. He knows where it can be found, for he looks through the whole earth and sees everything under the heavens. He decided how hard the wind should blow and how much rain should fall. He made the laws for the rain and laid out a path for the lightning. Then he saw wisdom and evaluated it. He placed it and examined it thoroughly. In verse 28, this is key. And this is what he says to all humanity. The fear of the Lord is true wisdom and to forsake evil is real understanding. As I was doing research for this sermon, I came across this quote. It says, man can count the number of seeds in an apple, but only God can count the number of apples in the seed. And I think that that illustrates the okayness that we don't have all the answers, that we can't answer every question people have about God. And I think that's okay. Because again, going back to that verse, God does not ask for our wisdom. He asks us to forsake evil. And I think that that even further strengthens the idea of empathy because you're going to come across people in your life who are going to be going through things that you have no words for. And that's okay because what they really need from you, especially in the moment of grief, is empathy. Just to let them know that you're there with them, that they're not alone. See, in Ephesians 2.5, even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that we have been saved. He doesn't ask for our wisdom or knowledge. God never commands us. To gain wisdom or knowledge. He asks for our faith, yet even when we are faithless, he is faithful. So he says, look, don't worry about wisdom or knowledge. I'm not asking that from you. What I'm asking for is faith. Yet, even if you're without it, I will come in and I will replace that for you. I am faithful even when you are faithless. But this doesn't mean we're without suffering, because obviously Job is the epitome of suffering seemingly without cause. But even in our suffering, there's growth. So we have to think. God never told Job, like, hey, this is just like a little bit I have going on with Satan. If you could just, like, hold tight for, like, seven days, everything's going to be chill. It's just I just need to, like, let Satan flex a little bit, and then I'll just shame him later. Could you please just hold on and everything will be fine? Job would just jump up and be like, oh, yeah, no problem. I got you, God. We're cool. We're cool. But that's not faith. And that's not ultimately love. By not telling Job, it forces Job into a life of naked faith. You know, I, I'm an eighth grade middle school teacher. I teach English and journalism, which means I probably have more patience than the average person. But I often get students who come into class who clearly have not studied and they, they end up failing their tests. right? Happens frequently. So, When a student comes in, they clearly haven't studied for a test. We're about to take a test. Me giving them the answers to the test is not love. Me allowing that student to fail that test is love. Not in and of itself, but because it presents the opportunity to be loving. Because in that circumstance, when a child comes in, he hasn't studied, fails a test, I'm presented with two options, either to be apathetic or empathetic. I can say, well, you reap what you sow. Like, this is the, the you've made the bed, lie in it. Or I can say, you've made a choice. Let's talk about what to do now, and then let's talk about what we can do in the future. That student has an opportunity to make a choice just like all of us do in the midst of suffering. He can become embittered, angry, Entitled, why is this happening to me? I don't deserve this. I've got this excuse, this excuse, this excuse. Or they can say, I've made a mistake, but God, in the midst of this mistake, in the midst of the suffering, what do you want to do with me? What can I do to change? What can I do to grow? And what can I do to avoid this situation in the future? And so I just think about like, what circumstances do we find ourselves in in which we're embittered, that we feel entitled to a different circumstance? when in reality God is sitting there going just look at me so I can teach you how to grow you know COVID and quarantine though not a joyful and fun time has certainly presented opportunities for growth I know that I'm a better person today than I was in March and I would like to think that I've I've taken advantage of every opportunity God's given me to grow but I just wonder how many of us are and how many opportunities I've missed for growth in the midst of this because I'm angry and embittered. You know, we've experienced people passing away, losses of jobs, having to wear masks everywhere. I could hardly breathe during worship because I got a mask on my face. But are these the things we're going to hold on to? Are these the things that have become bitter thorns in our lives? Or are we going to look back and say, in the midst of all of these circumstances, God was still God. God's not scared of anything. God's not worried about anything. His plans are not sidelined by a pandemic. Don't let your circumstances define, your, define who you are. Your circumstances are just that, circumstances. And God works past them all the time. So we find Job in the midst of his circumstances, whining, lamenting, and complaining. And finally, God answers back. In Job 38, 4 through 15, God asks, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? That's like all he needs to say. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundations and who laid its cornerstone? As the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy, who kept the sea inside its boundaries as it burst forth from the womb? And as I clothed it with clouds and wrapped it in thick darkness, for I locked it behind barred gates limiting its shores, I said, this far and no farther will you come. Here, your proud waves must stop. Have you ever commanded the morning to appear and cause the dawn to rise in the east? Have you made daylight spread to the ends of the earth to bring an end to the night's wickedness? As the light approaches, the earth takes shape like clay pressed beneath a seal. It is robed in brilliant colors. The light disturbs the wicked and stops the arm that is raised in violence. God is in control. God has created the foundations of the earth. There is no circumstance you're going through that God is shocked by. God has designed everything. All things work as he commands. It says, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. You know, I think back to that song. I didn't even think about it until we were in worship today. We go from glory to glory to glory. It's not we go from circumstance of sorrow to circumstance of sorrow. It's not even we go from glory and then there's some hardship. And then we go back to glory and then there's some hardship. No. We go from glory to glory to glory to glory. For God is in control in all circumstances and at all times. We may not understand exactly why they're happening But regardless, he is in control. Even in the midst of our suffering, does he not provide for us? Does he not provide us with opportunities for growth? He doesn't just plan to leave us where we are. He doesn't say like suffer and deal with it. He says in the midst of your suffering, I will grow you and I will bless you even more than you had in the past. I'm better off now than I was four years ago, 10 years ago. Thank God, just like talking about my marriage. If I had not changed, I probably wouldn't say I'm up here with my wife. I'm a better man today than I was five years ago because of the growth that God has given to me through my circumstances. And we see that even in the midst of suffering, he blesses Job even beyond what he had before. In the end of Job, Job 42, 12 through 15, so the Lord blessed Job in the second half of his life even more than in the beginning. For now he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 teams of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also gave Job seven more sons and three more daughters. He named his first daughter Jeremiah, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hapuk. In all the land, no women were as lovely as the daughters of Job, and their father put them into his will along with their brothers. God could have told Job at any time that was going to happen. He could have said, hey, just chill. and like I'm going to bless you even more than you've already had. But that's not love and that's not faith. That's not trusting God. So what we see in God's blessing, it's not a promise to restore. It's a promise to restore and then some. Just like Clayton's illustration last week, our cup runneth over. We cannot contain, we cannot fathom the blessing that God wants to rain down upon us. Therefore, let us open our hearts to empathize with one another because we cannot possibly be expected to fix every problem. We can't possibly be expected to have an answer to every question. We cannot expect to attain all knowledge and understanding by our own efforts. But thank God our burden is so much lighter than that because all he asks for is faith. Hey everybody, thanks again for joining us. We believe God has something great for your life and we hope this message encourages you to take the next step in your faith.